0: If you're not saying they all say in unison yeah. a thing. Yep. yep. <laughs> like if they don't they speak as one, I will treat them as one for roleplay purposes. Yes.
1: Yes, yes, yes. And they all have a Brooklyn accent for some reason. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Welcome to Dungeons & Dinners, where the love of fantasy is food for thought. I am your host, Brett Lindley, and that was a sample from today's conversation with Jared Bornigal of the Monsters & Multiclass podcast, also known as at Monsters underscore Multi on Twitter. Today, we talk about the true strength of goblins, foreshadowing, giving players some downtime, revising the rules of resting, and so much more. If you want to hear a bonus conversation after the main episode, where I may platter on for a little bit about affirmations, uh, or if you would like to support the podcast in general and help fund future endeavors, consider making a donation over at patreon.com slash Dungeons and At the $5 level and above, you will get access to exclusive bonus mini-episodes every single week that range in length from 15 minutes to full-length bonus episodes, as well as access to the entire catalog of previous bonus content. It's really quite the deal. That's four additional episodes a month, plus the entire back catalog for only $5. So, if you enjoy conversations like today's, don't forget to head on over to patreon.com slash Dungeons & Dinners and help keep this podcast ad-free. Now let's get on with the conversation. Welcome! Take a seat anywhere. we will be right with you. <laughs> And as I said in the intro, joining me today is Jared Bornigal of the Monsters and Multi Class podcast at Monsters underscore multi on Twitter. Jared, how are you doing today?
1: I'm um, doing quite well. Yourself?
0: Doing good. So for the uninitiated, for those that may not be familiar with you, please take a couple of minutes and give us a little bit of an introduction to yourself and what you do in the TTRPG space.
1: Yeah. So our show is about... Uh... Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition, and we will go through uh, different multi-classes and discuss the mechanics as well as the roleplay viability of them. Uh, So we'll take like an artificer and a barbarian and say does this work? What traps will you run into trying to build a character like that Uh, we also discuss monsters and give dm's tips on how to run them and how to also integrate the stats into the lore and just give different plot hooks for for dms to kind of uh get inspired from uh we're also right now just finishing up going through all of the subclasses that were released in tasha's cauldron of everything where we're basically going through doing reviews of them same deal really like to take a focus on the not just the mechanics, but also the role play viability of of these things.
0: Awesome. Um, so so right out the gate, I've got a couple of questions for you. So a, a subclass that I've pitched uh, more for roleplay viability than anything or a, a character rather. But I, I I've looked at trying to do it and I, I can't off the top of my head seem to think that it's going to really work that well. It'd be great to roleplay. I've talked about it on the podcast a couple times before, but somebody that's a little bit more knowledgeable and, and has a few more of the rules in their head. Uh, what do you think about a Warforged, Armored Artificer, Druid, Circle of the Stars?
1: Um... So off the top of my head, the the issues you're going to run into is that you need intelligence and you need wisdom. But with the Artificer Armorer, you can actually get away with a three-level dip and keep your intelligence at 13, because the the requirement of 13, Um, and then kind of ignore intelligence as a whole. Uh, Circle of the Stars, we actually just did an episode on Circle of the Stars, and it is a fantastic class. Um, So, I mean, from a mechanic standpoint, if you want me to keep going right. into that i think yeah, it could yeah. honestly work because well you do run into the issue where druids officially rules as written can't wear armor but it'd be oh, right. really cool to have like a what would something that a circle of stars druid would have like a meteorite armor or something right, that I could right, see them like yeah, like cool. like rock armor that they made yep. themselves that they're like no this this fell from the heavens so this is this works for me
0: if we're using stone there's not really lists for a stone breastplate but I'm sure no. that we could make so I'm sure a lot of DMs could make something work with that that's,
1: yeah that's how I always it's just like don't just it's it's a stupid rule <laughs> yeah right
0: right it's kind like, of the I mean third third edition was they got rid of metal armor for wizards like. Right but then but then keeping it in some other like just do away with it across the board let us role right. play please
1: even worse is they don't specify in the player's handbook what armor is made of metal right so it's yeah. not like it's like this clear guideline like officially i mean i just i have a druid a spore druid in my game and um i just let them make armor using uh dragon hide they killed a yeah. dragon so i was like yeah sweet you can you know use that it's you know plus one armor whatever and gets across all these or gets away from all these uh metal requirements but are right. you really telling me that there's zero metal in that armor i'm sure they had to use it in so like a
0: way. rivet right like right. A, a belt hook <laughs> like nope won't <laughs> you're touch not it. you're not making belt loops out of out of dandelion you know right straws like. right, right. <laughs>
1: um so no i mean honestly i think that could work out all right i can't think of anything that's like off the top of my head is like Yes, that synergizes super well. Beyond the fact that it would give the druid uh, heavy armor, which right. is great, and the uh, artificer's are armorer subclass is really strong. Circle of the Stars is like really strong. Was,
0: like I felt like they uh, went a little heavy-handed between UA and release on the artificer armor. Oh yeah. Like, <laughs> and now don't get me wrong, the UA wasn't necessarily like it needed a little bit of nerfing. I think the items in that needed way more nerfing than the than the class, mm-hmm. but. I feel like they went a little too far in just making sure that it was not going to be a top tier class. Like- yeah,
1: and it still ended up being really good. But the my main issue was that there's like the two forms of your armor and one of mm-hmm. them is the Guardian, I think. And the yeah. other one's like a stealth based one that I don't infiltrator, I think it's right. called uh, and. The infiltrator one is just, like, not a good choice unless right. you, like, know beforehand. So I hate that idea of just, like, you've got these two options, but one of them is just objectively better. And Right, the
0: guardian armor is just a you-can't-hit-me. Yeah. Um. And, and kind of locks foes down in melee to, to an extent. But then the infiltrator armor, I feel like, should be less of a bad re- ranger that needs to be rewritten and more mm-hmm. of something that can... Like buff your ranged attacks or allow, right? You know, some some kind of additional bonus to confer to to others, right? I feel like the the guardian armor too kind of got. I think it had a little bit better HP stacking with temporary hit points. Where in the in the early few levels, like when you first get it, it's great, but then later, it's mostly just I have a ton of AC, but it's with a you know a medium health pool getting. Getting that much, trying to lock down that much melee combat could still get your day ruined because you don't have the health or damage mitigation that like a, a barbarian would have.
1: Yeah. So no, I I definitely agree. I'm just trying to to look it up now and remember what the <laughs> yeah, because you get the defensive field or the thunder gauntlets, and the, right. the defensive field gives you that temp HP. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's a pretty good class. I I still. I don't know artificers have like a weird bit where i feel like after 10th level like the spell slot progression is so slow that it doesn't ever put them in a tier that like just the class as a whole is great um which is is fine it's just they're they're in a weird spot as half casters and i haven't had the chance to have one at the table yet to really validate a lot of my my opinions
0: (laughs) the only table that i've gotten to play one at uh the DM was very kind and gracious in item creation Mm. and and allowing me to express that side of it. Um, So I was able to kind of balance some of the weaknesses and drawbacks by just being a little bit faster and more able. We were in a kind of a more high tech world. I think we were doing Ravnica. So artificers are supposed to be everywhere and supposed to be doing things. So there was, it was easy to get, Three or four apprentices to help create an item in a day. Right. And at a cheap cost, than, you know, maybe a lot of worlds outside of that would be. So, yeah.
1: And that's something that always kind of, I don't know, frustrates me is the right word, but like rubs me the wrong way is that there are some classes recently that have come out that live and die by a lenient DM. Uh, the Artificer, I think, is one of them. The exact reason that you just said uh, they released the Bard College of Creation in Tasha's cauldron of everything. And that's its entire stick stick is that it can just make items. And it's very, very vague as to what can be made, how it's made. And if your DM is like, yeah, go for it, you know, make some crazy stuff, then it's fine. Um, but the limitation comes from like, you, can, it's a single item. Well, does a uh, thieves kit or thieves' tools, do those count as one item or are those right. six items because you have different tools in the thieves' uh, set? So, like little stuff like that, where it's like the more lenient your DM, that can be almost overpowered at how good right. it is. But if you have a really strict one, then you can be like, why did I pick this class? Yeah, then
0: the classes, yeah. It's, I think that there's so many cool things that can be done with item creation in general. And I think that it's something that was was really bad in third edition and 3.5, but fifth edition, it still seems like the jury is kind of out as far as I think maybe Adventurers League. It's a little bit more written to because there's like strict downtime, right? Like there is two weeks of downtime, so go to the downtime rules. But I think most home games, at least that I've experienced, do not play with a lot of downtime in them. no where you say, we have two weeks of not adventuring, it's plot point, plot point, plot point, you know, and you are you have a shopping episode is your one day of downtime, right? right? <laughs> so item creation is out the window if that's the case, and you're not going to have a week or two weeks to hire underlings to help you do stuff. And so I think that a, a lot of classes that have any, or just in general, just like for wi- a wizard that wants to explore making wands or staves or other magical gear, All those rules are kind of out and like Xanathar's did a little bit of help on that and kind of rewriting some more plot based item creation where DMs can throw a quest at you to get an item for it, which I think is really cool. But again, still there's now there's a conflicting rule set. There's two full sets of rules for how to do item creation. Yeah. And neither one of them really address the downtime issue.
1: Yeah, no. And I I totally agree. And uh, what I have tried to do to combat that as a DM is I will often push players that if they want to create something, if they want to take downtime, that I will allow them to do it just like on a normal day where they're adventuring. And they say, oh, you know, we've got like four hours until we meet somebody. And I just say, just write those four hours down, you know, and we'll just, we'll keep adding them up. It doesn't have to be, you have two weeks off. It can be, you know, during my long rest, I'm going to spend my, you know, two hours of, of light activity, uh, working towards creating this wand or whatever. And I don't think that's really what isn't expected of downtime. It is supposed to be this, like, you've got three weeks to just, you know, Right. Do whatever
0: you want. Run your business. Yeah. <laughs> you know,
1: <laughs> adventurers always have time for that. That's a running joke in my, my current campaign is because the party received a city, uh, like a, a derelict town that they are now building up from scratch. And uh, one of the earlier things I did to, to get things going was I introduced an NPC who is highly motivated to uh, handle all of the busy work. And every single time they're just like, yeah, we'll... uh." We'll see in, in I don't know, like two weeks, maybe three, like unless we get wrapped up in something, we've got to go kill a right. dragon. So can you handle this?
0: <laughs> but like two weeks, two to three weeks in player game time could be the entirety of the campaign.
1: Like, <laughs> for, yeah, for a lot. Say I've, I've actually kept track of time in my game. We've been playing for two and a half years uh, in in real world, uh, and they mm-hmm. have gotten through almost, I think, nine months. Or something yep. like that in game, um, and we have had downtime. I've I've specifically introduced right. reasons for downtime and handled it nowhere near the rules uh, <laughs> because it's I don't know it's people don't want to carouse for three weeks. It's right. not fun.
0: <laughs> I, I do really like so I've I've picked up. Um, I've not gotten to run it yet, but I picked up. Uh, Matt Colville did the a lot of work on the uh, Strongholds and Followers book. Yeah, and I think that that's a really good foundation and way to play with you know having having your city or your fort or your home base actually do something for the mm-hmm. party and i think that that's a really cool way and also incentivizes going back there and using it and checking up on it instead of just hey we have a cool tree house but we used it for for two or three episodes and now we're on a different continent so yeah
1: and i actually i When I was trying to put together what a city should mean for my party, um, that was the first supplement I went to because I really respect Matt Colville, puts together great stuff. I purchased uh, Strongholds and what is it? Strongholds and something.
0: Strongholds and Followers is the current or the the old one. There's Kingdoms Kingdoms and and warfare. Warfare.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I purchased the Strongholds and Followers one and I read through it and I was like, I hate this. Um, just from like a, a lot of the mechanical standpoint, a lot of it was just, it felt very old school and it wasn't the, it wasn't the feeling I was going for. Um, right.
0: I still think it it has some, it has the ideas though. The ideas yes, are, exactly. are, what's key.
1: So I, I definitely, I pulled a lot of inspiration from it and I 100% agree everything that you touched on, on the ability of the, the places that the players create, um, making, have having, actual impact and reason. Um, that I loved, So I, I brought that idea of like, hey, you know, if you build a library and you spend a week here and you're like, I'm going to spend a week studying in the library. Great. Well, what are you going to look up? Well, I'm going to study history for this amount of time. Great. You now have advantage on history checks for the next week. And since we track time, we can do that type of thing. So every time that my players have downtime at town, I ask them, what are you doing? And based on what they spend their time doing, I'll try and give them uh, some mechanical advantage for a a set period of time.
0: Yeah, I think a long term buff like that, like instead of, okay, you get a plus one to history now, like that's too much. Right. Right. Because that adds because then they're going to study at it every week until they get an infinite amount. Right. Right. But getting advantage because, yeah, you'll remember these details much more for a certain like maybe a plus one for a certain amount of time or yep. like you said, advantage or something like that. Like advantage is a really clear rule in fifth ed. So giving those long term buffs to skills or maybe even stats or something, then or or I think I think running if you are going to do a plus one. To something running a disadvantage for a certain amount of time, right? So like if you're going to train and you're going to do physical strength training or something, okay, well, you're going to be sore for a week. So you get a minus or a, a disadvantage on strength checks for a week. But after that, maybe then you get, you know. Sure, like sure. A plus one or a bonus of some sort. So I, I think that's a really cool way to do that.
1: Yeah. And that can be really good. And it's, it's definitely more bookkeeping than is like initially set out with fifth edition. So this is right. definitely not for everybody, um, yeah. though. It's not as much bookkeeping as like, say, inventory tracking, which I tend right. to,
0: um,
1: <laughs> but with something like that, I would probably work it where if somebody didn't have uh, proficiency in athletics and they spent mm-hmm. their downtime training, then just as you said, maybe for the first week, yeah, you've got disadvantage on athletics checks because you're sore. And and this is like a totally new thing for you. But then right. after that, Hey, it's a plus one, it's a plus two. And Hey, now that it's hit your proficiency bonus, you are proficient in it forever. There you go. Um, yep, and little things like that. And I think that's just, that's kind of the fun of being a DM is just coming up with those little mechanical things that everybody at the table says, yeah, I mean, we're not about to publish this because it might not be right. the most clear rule set ever. <laughs> and somebody's going to poke a hole in it. But yeah. this works. This works in this. situation. It works for
0: us or at our table in this campaign. Yeah. Knowing that we're not trying to min max.
1: Right. this Situation. Right. 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 And that's a big thing, too, is like I have a lot of campaign dependent rules um, yeah. where I know, like based on the party composition, like, hey, you know, I, I talk about it with my players, obviously. Um, but in our current game, we have a life cleric. And in 5th edition, a life cleric is ridiculous. They're level like 12 or 13, and she can pump out like 100 healing in a single turn, uh, Hmm. split up, you know, in like a 30, (laughs) 60-foot radius, whatever. And so somebody goes down and they're like, nope, I'm half health, just like that. And because of that, you know, I was like, all right, I need to find some way to, to put some limits on this. So I changed up the rest rules for this campaign, where while they are traveling on the road, they can only get short rests, no long rests. So this makes short rests more important. It makes long rests a lot harder to get and more important to find uh you, right. know, you have
0: exhaustion actually using exhaustion rules. Actually
1: using exhaustion rules. Maybe they have to think of, you know, should I use a greater restoration to drop that level of exhaustion, or do we push through with the disadvantage on skill checks or, you know, whatever the risk is. The point is it the <laughs> ability to spam long rests in fifth edition rules is written can get yeah. really out of hand. And when you add in classes that can just Nova healing, it's right. it's absurd in a different direction. The, the Nova is usually for damage that people are like, whoa, paladins are way too strong because they Nova everything. Um, but yeah, so that's something that next campaign I'm going to look at and say, does it fit with what we have? Because if we have an entire party of fighters and that's what they go with, then healing's not too much of a problem. Actually, they're probably screwed if they don't get more healing uh, from from easier long rests and such. So that idea of just You know, look at the campaign you're playing, change up the rules for that campaign. And, you know, the usual stipulation, if everybody's good with it, then it's fine.
0: Yep. I think that that long rests are a a big deal. I think the bigger deal with long rests really is under the fact that HP is stands for health points <laughs> yes and and in fifth edition they try so hard to clarify like it's more like stamina right because everybody knows you're not going to heal a broken arm or a gaping like gut glaive wound right like if you took a long sword to the chest and you're just like oh i'm just gonna sleep it off that's no problem (laughs) my lungs fully repaired (laughs) yeah yeah that's it's it's in complete conflict with the role play side
1: yeah and i think that's something i had to learn over my time dming because i remember when i first started dming it was like every single hit was just like yeah and you get cut here and you know you're you're bleeding everywhere and uh oh short rest yeah i guess you're good and you know right took me a while to realize there's just such a disconnect there so now you know i I play the way that i'm sure a lot of people do where the hp is stamina as you said and it's your ability to narrowly dodge blows and and not uh be worn down too much to get to that point where somebody's able to deliver the the coup de grace
0: right it's a it's a hard transition because it also means that you have to learn a whole new language for combat descriptions yes as a dm and to teach players, because for monsters, HP is HP, right, right? Like you you because you're meant to defeat them, you're dealing grievous wounds and things like that. But then it's also tenuous because if they're more NPC monsters or like more char- character driven monsters that could get away and you can encounter them again, then it's then it's stamina again. it's like you're constantly juggling. The theatrical elements of combat and the storytelling versus if this character gets away and gets an hour or two's long, you know, short rest, they're going to have some HP back. Right. So, um, so you also do a lot of reviewing, like you said, of monsters, and so I'm kind of wondering what is a monster that you do not see run very often. Uh, that you think deserves a little bit more credit than is due or maybe is just run poorly that you always see something that's never that never uses its special ability or something of the like
1: well i'll say run poorly that one i can answer easily and succinctly goblins uh goblins are one of those super low level enemies that everybody just kind of throws at you know low level parties and expects them to just get destroyed and doesn't don't really think about the tactics of them at all. Uh, But goblins have a whole lot that you can do tactics wise, where their nimble escape allows them to constantly keep distance. And they also have ranged attacks, something that is super deadly for low level players. Uh, So a four party level of two against like five or six goblins seems like they should wipe the floor with them, but you can easily range into a a TPK area. Now that said, I'm not saying run all of your goblins so that they TPK level two players. But what I am saying is that you can put them against higher level players than I think people expect. I put goblins against level fours and level five characters and have them use all of their tactics. And I think it can be kind of refreshing for players to see like, oh goblins are super deadly they're not just these little cannon fodder that should have been wiped out uh you know eons ago because they're so simple
0: right they have they have a lot more in their like plus to hit and damage than i think a lot of people realize when you read the cr and i've discussed so many times in every edition but especially fifth cr is total bupkis it's it's worthless but yeah, goblins are a lot stronger than they look, just because they have a few hit points. Like they hit hard, right, though. Right. And they, if you're throwing goblins against first level players, and you aren't fudging your rolls, you are very in in real danger of killing players.
1: Definitely. Definitely. So that's that's my one for for one that's just not run super well. Um, One that is underutilized, though, just like I I want to see more because it is my favorite monster. Um, One of the very first episodes we had, we were discussing monsters, of course, and we were discussing the NAGPA. Uh, So are you familiar with the NAGPA? I'm. I, I, I
0: you know, I have flump stuck in my head. So. No, okay, it's
1: not a flump. Uh, so a nagpa is a challenge rating. I'm going to say 17. So it, it's a lot stronger than a flump. Um, it is a bird person uh, who was cursed by, I think the Raven Queen, I, I, the lore aspect, you know, I, I have a homebrew
0: world, so I just throw everything out. Um Yeah, but, no, I, I feel yeah. that. I feel that. Like actual <laughs> official D lore, I go watch videos on because I'm so fascinated because I know nothing about right. it. <laughs> because I've run homebrew for 20 years. Uh but the the Nagpa
1: Nagpa's, there's nine of them in official lore, and they were all cursed by the Raven Queen to that be bird people. Uh <laughs> And they were wizards, you know, looking to gain knowledge. And now their only way that they are allowed to learn anything is if it's from a collapsed society. So their entire goal is to collapse societies by hiding in the shadows and, you know, pulling the strings and being these puppet masters. uh, And, you know, just, again, trying to collapse societies. And that's such, like, so rife with, Uh, plot hooks i mean yeah just for days you could think of them um so i've had many many ideas of uh different campaigns that are just you know know, nagpas basically in the background and you don't know for the longest time that who the big bad is and then it's revealed to be this creepy bird person and or nine
0: creepy bird people they basically they look like and almost act like skeksis Yes. So, yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> yes, They are 100%. And that's a great, like, that's, a, I think that a multi person big bad is really underutilized as well. Mm-hmm. Like, a lot of times you'll see, like, oh, there's the corporate overlord bad guy, like the CEO of the bad guys. And then there's your Bad guys CEO. Lower, <laughs> it, <laughs> right. <laughs> maybe I've played a little too much acquisitions in corporate. Yeah. But I think there's, there's a lot of that where it's like, there may be underlings and high powered underlings, but they're not the main. And so if you have an equivalent circle of wizards or sorcerers or bad guys in general that, you know, even, even something like high level players could deal with, I like illithids or beholders that, you know, decide to work together, you know, maybe a little outside of lore, but yeah still having one that the players could take down is one thing, and maybe they do, and that's a mid to high level boss encounter, but when your end boss is four more of them, yeah, and all at the same time, suddenly that's a real, the escalation of challenge goes through the roof. <laughs>
1: yes. Uh The only thing I'll say is I think the, the big reason why we, we fall into this single big bad evil guy trope uh, is that role playing five different people at once is so hard. I had to do that in my last session where I have like a a council of or a a summit of wizards turned into crystal people. That doesn't matter. But, um, you know, just like trying to make a distinct personality for all five of them and make sure that each of them have a voice while in a room with five PCs was exhausting. (laughs) So I can see why you only want one uh, one focus at a time. is It's just easier.
0: No, I, I do agree. I think that is, you know, there's a lot of truth in that where especially for anybody that even remotely tries to do like voice acting or just giving that even just giving individual, I guess, individuality to, yes. to each of the characters, yeah, yeah. like making them all unique is is easy to do when there's just one of them at a time. And you can keep those thoughts in your head about who would take what actions or how they would say things and things like that. But yeah, if there's four of them in a room, then if you're not saying they all say in unison, yeah. a thing, yep, yep. <laughs> like if they don't, they speak as one, I will treat them as one for roleplay purposes. Yes,
1: yes, yes, yes. And they all have a Brooklyn accent
0: for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> there's like six universal accents out there. Yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> um
1: yeah so i mean that's that's like it's a challenge and i i'm i force myself to do these things because i'm all about uh i guess getting better as a dungeon master and that's like it's a cool thing if that's pulled off correctly um whether or not i have so far in my game eh, my players haven't left yet so i'm doing good enough uh but it's it's definitely a a task so if you want to include uh, nine NAGPAs, go for it. But just make sure there's only like one in the room at a time. <laughs> right. <laughs> maybe two, maybe two.
0: Or do the the uh, kind of TV. Tr- I actually really like including. Um, this is something I actually haven't talked about. I don't think on any other episode is including film elements for exposition to the players where the players are not necessarily involved okay like describing a camera zoom or a scene transition or something that happens where nine shadows are in a corner and you hear this string of dialogue right. like i think that the dream sequence is used a lot uh to kind of cover for that but i think it's just as well like i think personally a lot of D has run in a more novelistic standpoint, mm-hmm. where it's like a a book on tape sort of thing or an audiobook and showing my age there, <laughs> um, but With your eight think, track
1: and <laughs> I know right. Oh boy, I'm not I'm not going
0: to tangent. I'm not going to tangent. <laughs> Stick in this one. But I think that describing film because I think that's where a lot of our like D and D is just as much a visual theater of the mind thing as it is a storytelling thing, and so I think that it's okay. To include talking about, you know, you see, you know, we start above the city and as we, you know, fly down on the back of a falcon, you see the busy streets of this place, you see, you know, this shop that is very unique that maybe the players need to engage with or they've heard about as part of their plot hook and you see that it's nestled between these buildings and then the you know the hawk flies over the the rich district or whatever and and comes back and and now we see the hawk fly over the four party members as they approach the city right and now we have introduced the city as a visual representation of what's going on maybe you're laying the map down on the table and yet you're giving the players a lot of information that they wouldn't normally see from the eyes of the Hawk, but they would know because you're putting a map in front of them or something. Right. right? right. So I think it's just, I think it's a fun way to engage because everybody knows as far as familiar with that type of visual representation, because they've seen it in movies, right? you know? Right. And so giving them, or even if they're traveling, giving them that, that zoomed out camera view where it's not just, you know, Goth are you are writing on the back of the Griffin and you see clouds below you, blah, blah, blah. All right. Next scene. Like instead, describing that camera shot as we go around the whole party flying or whatever it can be really fun way to to narrate.
1: Yeah, definitely. And uh where you and originally started, that was around the idea of like showing them information that they don't have. Um mm-hmm. And I think. That that definitely works very well with the table that doesn't metagame, which is kind of an obvious thing to say. Um, but, you know, if if your party is good with that, I think it's a, a fantastic thing to put in front of them because it's it can be used as very ham-fisted foreshadowing, uh, which is something that I think players, how do I put this, DMs feel like they are foreshadowing very, very well but players don't pick up on the hints because there's a difference right. between watching a movie and being the bystander where you can just like sit there. You don't have to think about your actions and all you think about is what's coming next and, and what's going to happen next. And you can put those pieces together. So you say, Oh, that was foreshadowing and yeah, you know, all, all of that was really simple. And I, I put all the pieces together. Great. Um, but if you do that as a DM, this like movie style foreshadowing or or, you know, shadowy figures uh, talking off camera, uh, then I think that can be a really good way to, to do that foreshadowing and, and get the message across. Um, and then on another side, not even gonna let you reply, I'm gonna keep going, because um, I, I liked what you said here. Uh, and the ability to do that type of camera descriptive, like camera work as a DM, I think would be really good for overland travel. And I haven't done that before. Um, usually I will try and describe it from their scene, what they see on the ground. You know, they are walking. But I think with travel, it's almost more important to narrate the feeling of the passage of time than it is to describe what you see while you are specifically traveling. Uh, so I, I almost wonder if there's a way to to incorporate both of those where you know off camera you see a uh, falcon dive down and you know grab a fish out of the water and bring it to its nest which is you know however many miles away whatever and then you know the party is seen uh crossing that nest and it's like kind of just this like overland travel description that's not talking about what they're doing what they're seeing but what's happening in the forest as a whole.
0: Yeah, I think that uh, there was a quote in actually it, it was about a uh, um, movie design uh, for the actually it was for there was a, it was a it was a kind of a dissertation on the entire trilogy of how to train your dragon oh, love as a trilogy instead of just individual movies, mm-hmm. but how the whole thing works. And one of the things that they brought up in that the I believe the director or one of the creative directors was talking about is that instead of a joke a minute. They tried for a feeling a minute hmm. a, and it a kind of an experience a minute sort of thing, because when you walk out of the movie theater, you don't necessarily remember all the jokes. Right. There may be a couple of good, really good jokes in there, but you're not walking out of the theater going, I remember all of these funny jokes. But if there are experiences and feelings to be had, you can at least remember that there was you know a powerful moment or something there's more chances for those to hit you in a way that is going to stick with you right and i think that giving that opportunity like everybody wants to not everybody but a lot of people come into D with that impression of the lord of the rings but there's none of the sweeping camera work that like that, like 90% of Lord of the Rings is, Mm -hmm. you know, there's five minutes of sweeping camera and one minute of dialogue and face-to-face stuff. And I think that bringing that into your campaign can do a lot. Like there's a lot of cool things you can do with it. And I do agree. Like, like you said, the players have to be willing and open to look, this is not railroading, Mm -hmm. but this is the things are going to happen in the background regardless. And if you guys want to play you you can sand. this is still a sandbox game. You can still still take any action you want, but while you are taking that action, stuff will happen in the background. And if I tell you what's happening in that background, it may even increase the sense of urgency that this is happening on a separate continent and you don't have a boat, Yeah, but you know that it's happening <clears throat> your characters may not necessarily know but you as players are and i think if everybody's okay with not metagaming too hard and there's ways that you can give again shadowy figures ta- they don't know that that these are the Nagpas. right there's still you just know that there's right yeah. there's still reveals that you can have and there's still things that you can hint at and drop that may not even know, you don't have to be direct with like, it's this city that we're attacking. It's like, we're going to bring them down. They don't know who's them, right? Is it the entire population of a city? It, the players may think it's them so that you can even throw some red herrings and misdirection in there. I think there's just so many things that you can do with camera work.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really something to think about. I I can't say that I have done too much of that. I've spent a lot of my past you're really focusing on improving descriptions. Um, right. But as I mentioned, a lot of that is what they see, what they feel. Um, though that's probably a conversation in its own right of whether or not you should describe what players feel. That one I oh, always yeah. really struggle with because you know there's some things that you can get away with, like energy crackles off of the uh, gem and you feel the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. Great. That's a feeling. That makes sense. Um, but saying like, you feel nervous, you feel frightened. I hate saying that in descriptions because it immediately takes away the agency of players to say how they feel and let the uh, the characterist, characteristically uh, brave person say, oh, you know what? I feel nervous. Because that lets everybody know, oh, my gosh, I should be scared right now because this person who's normally always, uh, you know, got their their head in the game is is now nervous. Um, So that's yeah, that's its own thing.
0: (laughs) I think that that is, you know, I think it's a great topic to go into. I think that player agency is a is a very difficult because. Too much or if there's not consent in that area, then it's puppeting, right? And players feel very negative about that like this is my character I'm very attached to them and and some of them may say I was willing to role play that but you took it away from me yeah. so I don't get my moment to shine and so I think that but and on the other side there are people who may not be as comfortable with role playing or wanting some help and giving them some of these starter descriptions to say like do you you're you're there is a very you know is your player afraid yeah And, and if, if they're like, no, I'm always the confident barbarian, rah, 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 like, well, this is the thing in your backstory that is, is really paramount to your character. How are you so confident in this moment? Are you sure that you're so confident in this moment? And, or, you know, just, are you willing to let me role play this out for you? Or do you want to take this? And, And I think that that's a, even with that, you can offer as much consent as you want. And there can still be that struggle of whose story is it and what makes, and then not just whose story is it, but what makes narrative sense. Right, right. And I think that that is so, it is really difficult to, to handle, if, especially if you have maybe a min-maxer that's a little less on role play. It's, it's really maybe at that point more of the structure of the game than it is about the story. So
1: Right. And, and something that I have to remind myself is that as the dungeon master, and I am basically the the forever dm at my table because i like it i really like dming it's great um (laughs) but i have to remind myself that i think of this story all the time like all the time i am thinking of how to structure this narrative and how to uh get the most engagement out of my players so that they walk away from every session and go that was awesome you know, no matter what we're doing, if we're dungeon crawling, if it's uh, political intrigue, if I'm you know totally doing a genre swap and we go from a fantasy feeling to sci-fi, like whatever it is, I want them to say that hit the mark. Um, so sometimes it can be such a struggle when you do have those moments where you're like, OK, I want them to be afraid. I want them to feel afraid. So as I said, you can't just come out and say you're afraid. You can ask the question of do you feel afraid? And if they say no, you just have to go. All right. that's. That's your character. You're you're running it your way. And this this is not my story. This is our story. As as much as I set up all of the stuff that's going to happen, regardless of if they move or not, because I love doing that. I love people having motivations and goals separate from the party that are going to happen regardless of the party's actions. Um, But I can't control the party's actions at the end of the day.
0: I think I don't want to. That's
1: just right. No,
0: I agreed. Because, yeah, again, we're not we're not just book authors Right, right 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 it is collaborative storytelling but i think that there's a lot of room. i've been learning a lot from having various guests on and some things that i have not done as much of but would like to do more of is offering players chances to describe scenes or pieces of scenes where you know there's been some people on that have talked about allowing their players to name npcs like this is the barkeep. You're next up for for describing something. What is their name, right? And and what is the, or who are they? How do they look? It's because the players will give you more of what they want to see in the story if they have more authority over the the background of the the behind the screen type stuff. But I think that there's also a lot of power in that for asking what players feel more often. Sure. Like, like you're walking into this cave. it's pitch black, except for your torchlight. What do you feel? And offering the characters' moments to to give the that feedback of like, well,'re we're, we're, I'm a little worried. Okay, you could jot that down and know that that player reacts emotionally with that scenario. So that way you can engage fear by like, your torch goes out. Sure. Uh, your dark vision doesn't work. You think you may be in magical darkness now, and then and then litmus test what it you know, it's not an every it's not the spot check every five feet. yeah, but you know, giving them that or asking them instead of describing every sight and sound, what do you hear? What do you smell? And allowing the players to give those responses instead of having to come up with all of them as the DM still builds the narration of the the scene or the environment you're in but allowing the players to focus on and, and think more narratively and get into more role play because now they're being asked to use their character senses and describe them.
1: Right. And that's, I think can be interesting and with the right table will definitely excel. I, right. I know my <laughs> table and like, this isn't to be dismissive of the idea as a whole. I think it's a great idea. Now no. um, my table, anytime I have tried those types of things suck at it. And I say this out of love because they're <laughs> great people. I've been playing with them for for years now. Um, and there's things they're great at and there's things that they're not great at. And one of them is like, I'll even do that. Like, hey, name this NPC, describe them. And every single time they're like, uh, Gary. And it's like, okay, I got it. So you're not right. trying and that's, <laughs> that's fine. You don't want to try and you want it to be on me. And I've seen other game systems thrown about that lean into that idea of player Player agency, not just in their character, but in the world. Um, yes. I I haven't found much success with it in D&D. Not to say that there isn't some, um, but I.
0: Yeah, it does. It does require everything is, yeah. you know, if you've got a, a min max or, or even just a more combat focused campaign, then description isn't going to be something. Or like you said, sometimes there's a reason that players are players and DMs are DMs right. and that they go to their DM for because they are good at that type of narration or storytelling. Right. Design. And I think that a lot of
1: it comes from one uh, unfamiliarity. They they've never mm-hmm. been given that power before as a player. So that's something that they could learn to to get into if they enjoyed it, which again, I don't think my players do that much. So just right. offering that If
0: they what do you smell when you walk into the room Well, Thoggar farted again? Yeah, it's like and okay, ha, ha, ha right. everybody laughs. like, okay cool. And let's, I, let's get I, on. And that's
1: what I worry about is that they're they're more looking at it for an opportunity for a joke rather than right. an opportunity to build on top of the narrative that's already there, almost because they're worried that it's it's safer to make a joke than it is to make something that steps on what the DM has already set out for. Right. Um, so if they say, oh, I smell uh, sulfur. And now the DM's just like, OK, why is there sulfur there? And like they have right. to kind of like, you know, fill in those those blanks, which I'm giving them that opportunity because I want to do that. But they may they just a lot of times players don't get it. So I don't right. think it's as much about like, oh, they're more focused on combat or whatever. It's more that it's just like they're concerned about stepping on what's already set up. Um, so, yeah, that's really yeah. fair.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's yes anding. Is is a lot of consent and 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 group improv, and that's something that like a lot of people say. Like, as a new DM, what should I focus on? And I, I see all the time, just like, oh, well, improv. Like, look at improv resources or improv groups, and not necessarily even realizing how difficult that can be to break into. Sure. And it's there is a lot of un- discomfort there, and so then to expect all of your players to be an improv troupe yeah. <laughs> it is is a lot yeah. to, to bring out
1: up the gate so whereas when somebody asked me like oh what should i focus on as a dm i was like just getting comfortable and like mm-hmm. just play for a little bit and yeah just dive in right. it really
0: is it's one of those games that there are some games that you cannot just well we'll just play a round or two and figure it right. out right well, if you set the board game up wrong, then the the rules won't make sense, and your first round will do nothing but teach you bad habits. Um, But in D&D, it's a lot more. Please just don't read the whole rulebook. Read as enough so that when your excitement level peaks, when you are excited about it, that's when you go try it. Yeah, definitely. Just get in and play with it. So you
1: don't need to know the uh, swimming rules or the the combat in water rules until you're (laughs) in water. And then right. you can say and then everybody can pause right.
0: <laughs> let's take five go get a snack i'm gonna figure out how we'll, this works and we'll keep going yeah <laughs>
1: uh yeah so that's that's always a tip for for new dms just play like don't yeah. there's and i think you'll find if you are a highly motivated person who loves dming you will find things that you want to improve when i first started my big thing was like, I need to get combat flowing smoothly because it feels like a slog right now. And I had that gut feeling that I was like, I, I need to make combat better. So I looked up tips. I said, what are some you know ways to make combat run better? And how do I get the setup done quicker? And let me put together these Excel spreadsheets that I can uh, print out and have everybody's AC already there. And I can you know put in the monsters correctly and all that stuff. Um, which luckily has gone away thanks to uh, a certain d Beyond that handles all of it for me. But, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> but, you know, it was still, it was a very big focus of mine. It's just like, how do I make combat feel the way it's supposed to, which is, is tense and fast and scary? Um, and then once I got that down, I started saying, okay, where are some other areas I can improve? So that I start focusing on making my NPCs more realistic people rather than uh, quest givers, you know, and then this next step and this next step. As I said, the last year, I've been focusing a lot on descriptions and trying to make those flow a lot better um, because just like 99% of, of people in the Twitter TTRPG community, I watch Critical Role and I like Matt Mercer's style and I like his ability to paint such a clear picture um that i'm like yes i want to be able to do that as well uh even if it's not for you know half the game session but i can still learn from that
0: yeah and i think that it's it's one of those things where like i learned a lot of how to describe things honestly by by reading so hot take i don't like the lord of the rings as books i hate them uh i can't take 10 pages of description of the shape of a leaf on a gateway and the poem or song in full language that's being sung or, or the lyrics of on the sides of the gate. and like, just walk through the gate. It doesn't take <laughs> 10 pages. I don't need 10 pages to walk through the gate. Like I get the rich history, uh-huh. but I think that comes through better in film than it does in writing. And I think in the same way, that's where I learned to not over describe. Sure. Because I think, you know, that's a that's a pit that I fell into very easily is monologue. Yeah, it's gee, I have a podcast. Who would know? (laughs) You like talking? Really? Huh? Crazy. Right. Right. (laughs) But but giving I mean, giving room to the guests, Mm -hmm. not I don't need to talk for 45 minutes in the same way that I don't need to describe a boring circular cave with two exits, for you know, unless there is a narrative reason for me to take, there's that line and that balance between how much do I describe to get a feeling or emotion across versus I don't want to bore my players. They're here to loot the dungeon and kill some goblins. Right. They want goblins. Right. So if they're not smelling goblins or seeing goblins or hearing goblins, they don't care. Next room. Right,
1: <laughs> right, right. And just so I know. Some people may may misconstrue that. But I think the what you're saying, if I'm understanding correctly, is that players want to have control of their characters. And while DMS are monologuing, they don't and they just can't do anything. So all they're doing is listening. Um, So as that's why it's always a big thing for me is if I am monologuing for such a length of time, it's that it's leading up to a important thing that they then need to have pure agency over their characters, like immediately, Um, which is fine. I mean, that's that's the way it works.
0: Yep. It's a focus, focus, focus dragon. Right. Right, right, right. So. So it wouldn't be Dungeons and Dinners if we didn't spend at least a little bit of time uh, getting into discussion of your relationship with food. So, of course, you are running a podcast, so you're probably not eating a lot on the mic. But uh, outside of no, that... it's an
1: ASMR podcast. We just <laughs> oh Lord. really close to the mic. <laughs> uh,
0: something, Man, I'm trying to come up with a super quick acronym for something, something, something monster. So <laughs> <laughs> maybe
1: maybe in the, uh, the promo tweet. <laughs> there we go.
0: Well, I'll try to find something there. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. So whether it's uh, in your campaigns, food in your campaigns or in the real world, um, what what is your relationship with food there?
1: So I do love cooking. Uh, I have a blast doing it. It is a hobby of mine outside of of D and d that bleeds into D and d anytime I can. Uh, my big thing when world building is anytime I create a town or a village, I, I want to think about what food would be unique to this place based on their resources. Uh, so you know if they have goats, there's probably going to be a lot of things with goat cheese and uh, you know goat milk if it makes sense, whatever. <laughs> goat things, goat meat really just goes from there. Um, so one dish that I, I love bringing up because every time I mention it, people are like, no, that actually sounds fantastic. And I ended up making it. So there's a teaser, um, is one town has root vegetables and, you know, beef cheese. That's like a a standard fare. Um, but ended up, as one of the starting taverns, the, the players went to uh, introducing a food item called the double barrel, uh, and it was at a place called the squeaky barrel, and it was potato pancakes, thin sliced uh, roasted beef, uh, cheese and another potato pancake. Uh, and they're just like, wait, that actually sounds delicious. And, you know, we talked about it more and it kept being like a, a recurring thing in our game where they'd always have to go like before an arena fight, let's go to the squeaky barrel or, you know, whatever uh, they wanted to, to have that. Um, so I actually ended up making it at home, you know, making the potato pancakes, making beef, whatever, uh, and found out that it was really dry in real life. Um. <laughs> And and a little bit disappointing there, but it was a good idea.
0: And uh, it's, I mean, I think, I think we can build on this. I think it, it needs a, this is almost, it's like a a variation of an open faced roast beef. Sure. 100%. And with different, and the big buns. It's potato pancakes. Yeah. Different buns. It's, it's different buns. So the keep, keep, I'm all about the potato pancakes. I'm all about the roast beef and the cheese. I think all it needs is a brown gravy. Okay.
1: I'm, I'm on board. (laughs) <laughs> Cause when I made them, I didn't have a gravy on hand and I ended up just like, I tried like 15 different sauces. It's like, let me make like a, a horseradish and mayo sauce. Let me make like mm, a, Yeah, yeah. I, I think I honestly landed on like just barbecue sauce, like good quality yep, barbecue sauce was the best that I had, but gravy is a good idea.
0: My- yeah. Cause it's, it's somewhere in between like an open faced roast beef and a, a, a poutine. Yeah. Right. A, yeah. Cause you've got potato mm-hmm. instead of fries, it's pancake. And, you know, you can change the cheese out instead of like a shredded. You could do a squeaky cheese because you've got a squeaky barrel.
1: I was so... honestly
0: thinking about that this morning. I have cheese curds right now uh, from mm-hmm. a, a
1: local cheese shop. And uh, I, I love that I have a local cheese shop. It makes me very happy. <laughs> that is uh, awesome. <laughs> it's literally like a three minute walk from my house. Um, so oh, I I'd, I'd gain so much weight. <laughs> um so yeah i was thinking i was like man i wonder if cheese curds would actually do better on that because i i think the more quality cheddar you get the drier and the less melty it gets or at least less good it is with melting so
0: you got to get into like gastronomy to get it to melt right
1: (laughs) right and so just like going full on into the cheese curds is is always a good way to get the get that stretch
0: yeah. And then instead of maybe thin slices, you can do like shredded or pulled roast beef okay. or even like a pulled pork yeah, yeah, or something yeah. Any or, or anywhere in that line. Instead of like full sandwich slices, just pull it apart and shred yeah. it. Yeah. And then, yeah, you've got potato pancake, a shredded roast beef, cheese curds, gravy, potato pancake. Yeah. And now and now it's a barrel like, right. you know, kind of shape. Yeah. And, and and you've got but you've got that moisture And really just depending on however you want to season your potato pancakes, I think you've got a a poutine sandwich is is really what you're going for. And I think that would be amazing. I am so so glad
1: I came on here because...
0: I am, uh, I'm, I'm going to try to make this please now do, because I'm, yeah.
1: Uh, say, so like, that's, that's been a lot of fun for me is like, and, and so now when I make variants to it in real life, the idea is that once they go back to that town, I can be like, oh, and here's, you know, the, the upgrade they've been working on it too. Yeah, and-
0: exactly. <laughs> the The chef, the chef got a couple comments right. that it was dry yeah. and, and that the cheese didn't melt as much as he wanted. Right. So he's he's changed it or she's gone through and rewritten the recipe or had somebody else come yeah you know he had an apprentice come in she is now the sous chef Mm -hmm. he is the executive the restaurant's doing a lot better because they upgraded the sandwich she brought some ideas in now it's more thriving they've built an extra room or they've expanded the dining area and i think that yeah if there's a location that your players come back to over and over again make it cool like it levels up yeah yeah
1: it should be growing and that's that's such a good segue Uh, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i i love that every single time my players are going to revisit an area the first question i have is what's been going on what's changed and how do i make that really obvious to them uh so that stuff is is fantastic and uh from a real world perspective once Usually at the end of a campaign, which we are coming up on, I love to do like a, a big day long session where we just, you know, wrap things up and, you know, have a good time, eat, drink, whatever, be merry. Uh, so I definitely now want to make these with their revisions uh, for that
0: that final final session. That's going to be good. I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to have to tell me how that works out. I think, I, I think it sounds like it could work. Yeah. And, Except- and I don't even think the, the gravy doesn't need to be super fancy. No. It can be like a a packaged brown gravy is fine. It's it's solid. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> though a mushroom gravy would be pretty good. That so. yeah, would also be really. <laughs> I mean, you could go as far as you want right. with this. I mean, you you could you could lean into uh, a, a, a like a Philly cheesesteak direction yeah. and do peppers and onions, and or like a, a pickled kind of flavor. You could bring in some sour. But I think it might me personally, I'm a huge fan of a of a, a sloppy, wet, open roast beef sandwich. Yeah, like. <laughs> and, and the way that
1: it is, and it's actually funny because, uh, as I mentioned, it's called like a double barrel. That's the fact that there's two, but there's also right. there's like a single, a double, a triple, quadruple. Ah, yep, so like it's yep. just. Stacked how, or, how many stacks? Right, right. Which is like it's such a like I ate a double, and by the end of it, I was like on the couch, and I was like, That's I'm sure. way too much. Adding gravy to it, I'm gonna be out of commission. Um, so a single might be all that uh, a human right. really needs. But you know, they're adventurers, so they're like, We'll take a quadruple right. each and and six beers. Oh, of course.
0: <laughs> okay, all right. Have well your, your infinite stomach and your high con score have at right. it. Right. <laughs> Um, the wizard has to check for food items. So, <laughs> well, uh, Jared, I always love to cede the last, uh, section of the podcast to my guest. So whether it is something that we have missed out on, uh, or a shout out that you would like to give, uh, please you, the floor is open to you for the end of the show. I can't believe I wasn't ready for this. That's. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it it could also be snippets of wisdom, or you know, just what whatever whatever strikes your heart, you know. Okay,
1: here's here's my thing. So since I am the the multi classing person, uh, and I've I've been trying to establish this as my my niche, um, or I guess we have as a podcast, um, the. One bit of advice I will give around multi-classing is to not be obsessed with the the builds out there that are focused on making the most optimal thing in the world. Um, You don't need every single multi-class to be a mechanical beast. Most of them are more fun if you just let it happen naturally within your game. Uh, you will find opportunities for your player to branch out. Sorry, not your player, your character to branch out from their current interests. And just like real life, you're not going to love one thing. Um, I love Dungeons and Dragons. I also love cooking. Thank you for having me on this because that was a perfect combo. Uh, <laughs> and you know, I think people need to uh, not need to. I encourage people to uh, open their minds up to that style of character development and letting multiclassing mechanically represent a large change in your character. Uh, Somebody who is finding religion, a cleric is a perfect way to do it. Uh, A wizard who feels like they just keep watching their friends get brutalized or they themselves keep getting hurt uh, and learns how to fight with a sword. Uh, Sure, it might not have been the class that you originally set out with, but you now have a couple levels in Fighter, you can start wearing some armor, and it has some mechanical benefits, sure, you're also having some mechanical downsides, but the point is, is your character is becoming more enriched because you made a conscious decision to change your class. Um and I think using it in that way is I won't say not used. People love doing that, but I, I highly encourage people who haven't multi-class to really think about that.
0: No, that's that is huge. I think that allowing allowing a class to just develop instead of saying I want to build, you know, Iron Man, you know, using this video. Um, I think that's a that's a great way to do it. I think it just allows the story to happen more because I think more often than not, even with just a general narrative that I have for a character and a backstory, that just because I set out with that doesn't mean that that is what happens to that character. Right. I think that players have a, in my experience, learn that lesson harder than DMs because DMs learn it every session. Right. <laughs> um, that what I planned is not what is going to happen. Um, but I think that it's a it's a key lesson for for players to take away as well is just let things let your character be and let it happen. Right. So. Jared, thank you so much for coming on again. That is the Monsters and Multi Class podcast at Monsters underscore Multi on Twitter. Links will be down in the description. It was great having you on. Yeah, thanks.
1: It was really fun being on. It's nice to be on the other side of the the, the interview seat,
0: <laughs> right? That is all for today's episode. Thank you all so much for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, consider going and uh, clicking on that little star rating thingy or dropping a review in your podcast app of choice and help boost the algorithm gods to get this podcast to more people. All of the links and contact information discussed can be found down in the show notes. And if you want to keep in touch, you will find that I am most active on Twitter at and dinner. So that's A-N-D-D-I-N-N-E-R-S. If you are interested in supporting the show or you want to get access to the entire back catalog of exclusive bonus episodes like today's minisode where I take some time to talk about my new D&D affirmations project. Or if you just want to help keep this podcast ad-free and support future projects, consider tossing some coins to patreon.com slash Dungeons and Dinners. If you're looking for other great podcasts to listen to, I recommend my other broadcast, Pick Up Your Sticks. It's a long-form podcast about why video gaming matters, co-hosted by myself and dear friend Walker Near. I'm really excited to be sharing this journey with you, and remember that love is the secret ingredient. Have a good day, friend. Thanks for stopping by.